everyday witches emerge from the shadows of secrecy. Broom closets are flinging open and witches are taking flight. Whether you are hiding in your cozy closet or flying with pride, stay for a spell as witch casting with Theodora Pendragon and her guests share magical moments, stir the cauldron and debunk misinformation and misconceptions about paganism, witches and our wonderful world of magic. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Theodore Pendragon, and my special guest today is A.G. Fletcher, who is an author, a.k.a. Andre. Welcome, Andre. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome. So you're a writer of fantasy novels? Mostly. Sometimes uh, I dabble with other genres, uh, which is why um, my upcoming novel, Black Rose Cocoon, is my first standalone novel that's basically crime, thriller, horror, and a little dash of fantasy, but it's very subtle. Tell us about your upcoming novel, Black Rose Cocoon. So about a year and a half ago, when I was finishing up my series, uh, Black Rose Cocoon, uh, sorry, Boone and Jack, I was seeing a lot of interest, especially on streaming services for true crime. And I kept asking myself, why is there such an obsession over serial killers? And how come there's not much discussion over female serial killers? So I started listening to all these different kinds of true crime podcasts, others that did focus on serial killers, and then asked myself, well, what is it that makes a difference between a male and a female killer? So I started doing my research. I talked to criminology professors. I uh, started reading up on uh, female killer psychology. And basically, over time, as I listened to all of this information, I started to formulate a question. What drives someone to kill, but also, and the bigger question is, how does that affect other people? Not, how can I justify or therapize someone who has that kind of impulse? So when I started to work on the structure of the story, instead of it being some kind of character origin story, I focused more on how does this serial killing affect society and uh, the family members of the victims. So I did a four character rotation of a detective, a radio disc jockey, a doorman, and one of the victims' uh, mothers. So that I show the readers how you have to really value life and that it can happen at any moment, either because someone took that life or because of some accident or uh, unforeseen um, illness. How we value life. What did you discover? How different people value life? The way I discovered that question is actually when I was watching this interview with uh, Guillermo del Toro. 
who, um, if you know him, he's a well-known director and he does talk a lot about the relationship between life and death. And he said this quote that really stuck with me, which is what inspired this book. Life can only begin if it ends, meaning you can't see death as this horrific event or this thing that you should fear, but as something beautiful because death allows us to see an expiration date as motive to really maximize our time here because Yes, there is life after death, but how you actively go about your life is only when you're present in the physical sense, where in the spirit world, you can only be an observer. You can only observe life at that point because those who are still in the living world can't see you, can't actually physically interact with you. They can only interact with you on a spiritual level. Have you ever had a near-death experience? Not in the sense that I saw things, uh, spiritually speaking, but there were times where I could have died. For example, at my previous job, I was using a grinder, which is a metal cutting tool. And although I was wearing protective gear, I had locked it on and it flew at my face and I could have literally had my brain severed. So I swung out of the way and now I just have a scar on my arm. But Seeing literally the inside of me and trying to keep calm and being in shock at the same time, it really made me think, what am I doing? Where, am I just kind of accepting this dangerous job and uh, kind of stewing in, in a sea where I feel lost? So as soon as I just thought about the repercussions of Staying in a place where safety is not really its priority, I started to think about my own priorities and where I want to go in life. And do I want to keep the same rhythm of write, take a break, write again? Or do I want to really see where my life is going and where I want it to go? Would you say that was a spiritual wake-up call? Yes, because... Of course, when that dangerous tool was flying at my face, I had to rely on uh, my martial arts instincts. So the fact that I had to use muscle memory as opposed to just accepting this danger, I realized that if I value my own life over an employer's lack of care, then I have to really uh, reevaluate myself. And and what does that mean for my own creative outlet? And if that is just a creative outlet, then why do I see it that way? Because every writer has their purpose. And I've been asked that many times and I've always had an answer. But I feel that over time, that purpose has evolved into something deeper where I'm really trying to maximize emotional value in my writing because... That is something that I don't really see often in modern books. It's very, not telling, but very, um, I guess, close to home, close to reality, where there should be a bridging of fiction and reality. 
Have you been wanting to ride your broom like you stole it, rather than hiding in the shadows? Theodora Pendragon is here to help your magic shine, whether you want to show the world your subtle sparkle, or you really want to light your fire. Visit Theodora's online store at witchcasting.shop. That's witchcasting.shop. Remember, there's never been a better time to be a witch. Going back to the research you did on serial killers, what did you find as far as the difference between female serial killers and male serial killers and how they value life or why they feel they need to kill? Male killers don't really have an emotional reason for doing it. That's simply random body count. Where, yes, there is childhood trauma, but that's not the case with all male killers. Sometimes it's just something they can't control. And there may be uh, a difference in brain chemistry and even uh, the size of, of the part of the brain that is supposed to feel remorse. But uh, female killers, even though they have the same impulse, uh, usually it's they're, they're opportunist. They're, there's a motive. There's some kind of reasoning behind their killing. So, for example, famously, uh, Eileen Warnos, her target kills were middle-aged white men, which goes back to her father issues. But some other female killers is for financial gain and a sense of vengeance or control. So it's more dangerous because it's more psychological. It's more about justice and exacting their own primal needs in the darker sense. So that's why I was fascinated by that, because if someone has an emotional vendetta with the mix of very scary uh, impulse, then that means that their killings have some kind of human uh, intent, as opposed to just random killing. And that's even more sadistic, I guess. Because you, it's not, it's not that you can forgive a man for killing someone. It's more like you know that there's no human behind the killing. He's just a monster. So you can't really be mad at them. But at the same time, you will be just as mad as if it was a woman that killed your child or the opposite where you're the child and you don't have a mother anymore. So really, the difference is that if someone had some kind of like... They're trying to release their their trapped trauma, then that means that they're just externalizing their pain onto you and causing you pain because it kind of balances the field, I guess, for them. Death can be seen as a dark theme in your storytelling. Mm-hmm. Why have you included this in your book? It's very fascinating. I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. No, um, the reason why I included that is because I know that I wouldn't be able to pull that off a second time. So I wanted to really see how I can make the message clear of why that, that darkness is there. And it's because I realized that when I was watching these victim impact statements, that when you read a crime novel, there's no focus on the effect of the victim's family members and friends. So the reason why there's that darkness there is that 
there's this emotional value that's missing in a lot of crime novels because they're focusing on the thrill of the hunt. And that, to me, is kind of an insult to the reality of what those books are based on. Because if you focus on a detective looking for this killer before it's too late, then there's no real attention to how others are affected. So to kind of, I guess, echo how this has affected uh, families emotionally is extremely valuable to me. Not in the sense that I want to write a depressing book. It's more like just bringing to light what is not really discussed in crime novels. You chose the word depressing. Would you say your book's depressing? No, that's that's why I took a long time developing the idea. Because I think I spent maybe six months to a year before even starting on the book. Because I wanted to make sure that I'm not focusing entirely on the emotional outpour of the family. I want to focus more on the build to that moment of where we get to see all the victims' families expressing their their anger and sadness so that that becomes the emotional payoff towards the end of the book as opposed to me uh, riding that train of depression throughout the whole book. It's more like we don't get to see or even know, like the characters don't know who the killer is because they don't have that actual direct interaction with them until the very end. So it's more like I'm asking the the readers to be patient with me and go along with the journey that the characters aren't aware of, but they are so that we as together as me as the writer and them as the reader, we see how these characters are trying to evaluate themselves through this journey so that when we do get that that darkness that really blows up towards the end, then we've learned to value them as people as opposed to caricatures and they in turn value themselves and aren't so so numb to themselves. And that when the event is over, all that's left is repairing themselves and also evolving out of their cocoon that they had built for themselves in this busy environment that they were always in. And because it's such a busy environment, they don't have that serene environment to really look at themselves until they've been forced out of that environment and then come back in. You said that you were a fantasy writer also when you first reached out to me. Do you have fantasy within this book, Black Rose Cocoon? Yes, I tried to include the spirit world. I won't spoil it, obviously. But <laughs> what I will say is that um, there are there is one character that is caught between worlds. And we don't Ooh. see that transition until the very end, where something happens where they can move on as a ghost into the afterlife and not have to have unfinished business. But I didn't want to include that as like a constant through line. It was more like the character that they have an interaction with that allows them to move on into the afterlife is just asking themselves for forgiveness and accept their family member 
to just leave, leave them alone and so that they can, you know, be themselves, you know, and, and just accept that they had a life. It wasn't the happiest. It was it ended tragically, but they don't have to hold on to that anger anymore and just become an observer. That's really interesting. So you're, you, one of your characters is a ghost. Mm-hmm. But we don't see them until the very end. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. So I think in about a month, it'll be nine years since my mom passed away. When I was in the hospital the day that she passed, I actually felt death's bony hand gripping my shoulder. I never believed in that before because I had never actually lost someone, especially close to me. Like right before I felt that hand on me, I actually felt a dark shadow behind me. And ever since then, whenever I'm like in the basement and just watching TV, I feel this cold air blowing on me sometimes. And they're actually, I don't know if it's like inner demons or something, but there have been times where I'm like half asleep and I feel someone violently shaking the bed, like, and just at my head as if someone or some ghost is trying to strangle me or that I'm doing it myself without noticing. So that felt like, like paranormal activity to me because it didn't feel like it was in my control. And that someone from the, from the beyond is trying to communicate to me what I didn't notice. And there was actually a couple times where it's like two in the morning and I actually hear and feel someone whispering words into my ear that I know is not there. And I thought, man, maybe it's just my imagination, but I'm pretty sure that it was some kind of spirit. Can you actually hear the words they're saying? Yeah. I remember there have been a few times where I heard the word no, or what are you doing kind of thing. And it's not just that I heard the word. I actually felt that spirit's breath going into my ear. And this happened in your home? Yeah, not not recently. But I think I think whenever it did happen, it's because I was going through something and that spirit could feel it. Do you believe in soul contracts? Uh, I mean, I had never heard that term until I started listening to your podcast. Really? Uh, yeah. It was, it was very interesting. My favorite episode of your podcast is the death doula. I love her. I love all of them. Yeah, though. she's awesome. But I think it, it makes a lot of sense, soul contracts and even the the concept of having our own timeline. What I thought was so interesting about soul contracts is that whoever made us sign that contract gave it to us because they gave us an opportunity to seek fulfillment in a, a path that we weren't told about that there's this there's this timeline of ours that is set for us without us knowing where it's going to be because it depends on how we go about our decision making so for example when my dad was in a car accident when I was eight, his soul contract could have been very different. It could have been shortened to you're going to die in this car crash, but it changed to where he survived it, but he just suffered some injuries. So that's what's 
interesting about me about believing in a soul contract, which is that you're given an opportunity to see how you're going to react to different events in your life as opposed to just going day to day. Because if, if you want to go day to day, then you're not aware of the fact that you do have a limited amount of time and that, yes, you are aware you're going to die someday, but you're just like, well, I'm just trying to pay the bills. It's like, yeah, but what about outside of that? What are you doing outside of your routine and the basic necessities to live as a human being? So, yeah, I do believe in soul contracts. And do you believe we all have our time here that's predetermined? So in other words, our time is up at a certain time when we fulfill certain parts of our contract. I wouldn't say it's predetermined. I think it's only predetermined if you make it so. Because you can't plan everything or control everything in your life. You just can't. You can try really hard and and you know, save your money, uh, make certain decisions. But even when you do that, the reaction of the person in charge of your soul contract is very unpredictable. So you can't really have a predetermined life because it's not meant to be that way. Life is not meant to have some <laughs> sense at every instant. Yes, there'll be periods of your life where it's just kind of going and there's no change in the pattern that has been set for you at that time. But that pattern can change, even if you don't want it to. I believe that we have choices to make. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we don't fulfill our soul contract with people now, it's going to happen in another lifetime. Do you believe in reincarnation? I believe in reincarnation if in your past life you had unfinished business. So if, if your life ended sooner than just old age and just natural unfolding, then yes, there could be reincarnation if your soul decided that it wanted another chance at a different life for the things that it didn't get a chance to um, to act on. After listening to the death doula, mm -hmm. did that inspire you to write a book about soul contracts? You could put that in with your characters? Sort of. Meaning uh, there's a, a book that I've that I'm going to write in the future called uh, Red Widow Waltz, which takes place in the same uh, area, Halberton City, as uh, Black Rose Cocoon, in which certain people have been followed around by a CD government, and this government discovers that they have certain abilities and are going to use their soul's emotional acreage to weaponize them, to weaponize their emotions, to make them basically killing machines. So the death doula inspired the idea of, I guess, creating an environment for your own deathbed. So I wanted to create that kind of, the sense of wanting to do something on your deathbed, where you're not just going to say a bunch of things to the people that you love or even hate, but also create this sort of forced change before you pass into the afterlife. Because 
a death doula creates a certain environment when that you when they know that you're going to pass, right? So I wanted to create that kind of person in even in my fantasy uh writing. So in my upcoming uh not novel but the series I'm going to write Zefutra, uh, which is going to be probably 3 4 books, I wanted to have a witch that isn't necessarily a death doula but does focus on that as part of her craft where part of her craft is seeing people that are about to pass or can kind of see their um, unforeseen death that will be sooner than that person knows it's going to happen and gives them some kind of plan as to what they are meant to do uh, by the time that they're under deathbed. It's almost like you're describing an event that usually happens after the person dies, which some people refer to as a celebration of life. But it would be really neat if the person who's about to die has like this event to celebrate their life. Wouldn't that be cool? So that's that's basically what I'm going to do by the end of, of that fantasy series where one of the characters will die, but will be reincarnated as a human being in Red Widow Waltz. And this person who's living a second life will get flashes of the other life that they lived. Ew, well, does this person know that they came back? Or just the reader will know? Mm, by the end of the book, yes. So essentially what happens is this person that's reincarnated as a human being will have flashes of their life and their family and will actually go looking for that person. But when they discover that they might not necessarily exist in that world, they'll wonder well, should I go back to that world and try to finish what I didn't finish? Or am I finishing that here, in this world? You have lots of ideas for future books. How many books have you written? I have written the series behind me, you see. It's kind of out of frame. Boone and Jack, which has five books. And I plan to write seven more. Seven ideas that I have, like, concreted. I know the listeners can't see your books, but I can see them. And the books look really fascinating. I, I love your book covers. Thank you. Yeah, the artist who did uh, right here, uh, book four and five, is doing the cover for um, Black Rose Cocoon. She's doing the rough adaptation now. Uh, to give the listeners an idea of what the cover might look like, because I'm fascinated by it. Um, it's not necessarily the killer's actual outfit, like her wardrobe. I wanted to kind of put an accent on how the killer sees herself. So she sees herself as this grandiose Victorian woman that uh, has some kind of beyond the grave kind of per, uh, purpose, where she be believes that love is only true if it's dead meaning true love in motion can can leave you and because she doesn't want to lose love that's why she takes it away from people because she doesn't want them to suffer like she did like that's that's her belief and that's why she doesn't believe that when she's killing someone she's not killing someone she's giving them the opportunity to be seen lovingly 
in the afterlife. So that's that's kind of her motive. So I wanted to really encapsulate that in the cover. So she's wearing this black and purple and even a bit of a green tattered dress. And she's holding uh, a heart in her hand. And she's looking at it like this, very Shakespearean. And she has both this like crazed look, but also loving look at a dead heart. Because that's how she sees love, as this motionless object that she can kind of, I guess, taxidermize into a posture that solidifies that victim's true idea of of love and and themselves. So that's kind of the front cover. Back cover is going to be the from the perspective of an ocean storm going up into a tower. Which is where, or sorry, cliff, where which is where the killer's, um, I guess, nesting area is, but we don't see it. And there's a ladder, and then there's a cave. So that's where I'm balancing my fantasy imagery, but trying to keep it in a real world where the fantasy part of the universe that I'm creating hasn't really shown yet in that timeline that I created for this story because it takes back I think 10 15 years before uh or sorry exactly 10 years 10 years before Boon and Jack took place because I want to show that I am capable of creating a very gripping story without relying on a fantasy world heavily it's kind of just kind of sprinkled at the end where there's some kind of bizarre ruling in how the city functions so that there's this sense of yes it's a real world but it's written in a sense of wonder so yeah do you consider yourself a spiritual person yes i would say so i'm a hopeless romantic and very passionate so being spiritual is just natural to me when in the past when i when i was still dating some women found that to be a bit overpowering because uh i expressed love very strongly and because my sister uh lives farther away now we talk more than we used to every week we talk at least once and because of you know everything that i've been through i've really learned to open up with with her and other and certain people and to really value myself and love myself and that whenever I meet the future wife or, or girlfriend that she will understand that I'm not just a passionate person, but I'm also spiritual. I believe in, you know, the afterlife and uh, different forms of spirits, be they angry or happy, um, unfinished business, or just there to observe there to support you know, it's not always about a spirit wanting something from you. It's just being there in your life. You know, I still believe that my mom's around because there are times where I'm just hanging out with my dog and he'll start looking around as if he feels something nearby. So that's why I always believe in that. And that's why I don't really talk about that stuff with my dad because he doesn't. You know, I've, I've learned to accept him and love him for who he is, but having a spiritual or emotional conversation with him is not really in the cards anymore. And I've learned to accept that. I used to try and make it happen, but it's, it's one of those things where you just have to understand that even though 
you have people in your life that you love and love you in return, you can't always have the conversation you want to have with them. You can have certain other conversations because of how they are and how they think and how they see themselves in life itself. But yeah. Yeah. That is a little difficult to talk to someone about your spiritual beliefs. If the other person doesn't share those beliefs, because you know, I know sometimes I can come off as being quite cuckoo and I'd like, well, okay, well, we just won't have that conversation. I'll just have that conversation with my friends who don't think I'm cuckoo. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as your dog seeing your mom, I truly believe that, you know, animals are just so perceptive, you know, to the physical world and the spiritual world. Was it Sa Sabine? Is she the... The person with, with the animals? Yes, she was a guest on my show, Sabine. Uh huh. I was happy because French is my first language. So I was, I was happy to see uh, a French person to, to, that is uh, spiritual. Yes, yes. I found her fascinating. I found the, the idea of being spiritual with an animal and that you can communicate with them telepathically. That... I believe is absolutely true because if the if an animal can't speak to you in your language, they have to use another way of communicating. So the idea of a horse, like she was saying, or um, cats, is not really that outlandish because if if they can sense danger, they can sense communication. Is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners about? Anything we've talked about or we haven't even touched on? The only thing I'd like to add is what I'm trying to do with every book that I write, which is that I noticed that a lot of older books have this power that doesn't really exist anymore, which is to leave an impression on you that is not just visceral, but makes you ask questions about yourself, you know? I may not be like your other guests that have a business, but I believe there's true power in fiction that is still out there, but it's just very hard to find. And that's what I try to do with my books, which is to create power and emotion so that you ask yourself questions and really feel like the words are disappearing and you just go with the journey of the story. So whenever any of you end up picking my book, picking up my books, please understand that that's what I'm trying to do, which is to get you to feel something, not to just bring you along the adventure that I've created, but to really connect with you because I try to connect with myself when I'm writing. That's why whenever I finish writing a book, especially Black Horse Cocoon, like I actually had an out-of-body experience when I finished typing the last word. Actually, like like when I did this, when I typed with my my uh, my ring finger, I actually kind of like broke out of my headspace that I put myself in when I was going along this whole journey of Black Horse Cocoon because I had put so much of myself in there because I knew that I wouldn't be able to replicate this book again because it took so much out of me. I tried so hard to try to understand the different kinds of emotions, different kinds of effect of losing a loved one and wondering who am I and who are they to me? So yeah, that's, that's how I want to end that. Thank you for that. 
Where can we find your books? You can find them on Amazon as a Kindle or paperback. And you are A.G. Fletcher. Yes, I am. A.K. Andre. Thank you for sharing all this with us today. And I am going to check out your books. You provided me with your links, and I'm going to put those in the episode notes. Okay. Thank you for being my guest. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for joining us for Witch Casting with Theodora Pendragon. Have a burning question or have a topic you'd love Theodora and her guests to discuss on the show? Contact her through Instagram at Theodora Pendragon. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. And help us spread the word by leaving us a rating and review and sharing it with your friends. See you next time and may your magic always shine. Thank you.